when you look around at the events taking place in this world, are you ever tempted to question where God is in all of this? When you look at especially the things going on this past year, it's been revealed to us again and again just how corrupt the powers are that rule over the people of this world. It just seems like sometimes uh, everything is coming apart all around us, and we may be tempted to, to say, you know, what is going to happen to the church with all of this stuff going on in the world? What is going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our families, our children, fellow believers, if things continue on the trajectory that they are on? And it's a valid question. Today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture as we continue our study through the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we'll begin in 1 Kings chapter 11, just to recap a little bit of where we were last time. But we're going to see a time in Israel's history that it began to usher in a time of great darkness and hopelessness and fear and concern. And these are very old words we're reading today. This took place about... 3,000 years ago, and yet I would submit to you that we will, without much effort, find ourselves and our culture in this chapter today. I had planned on covering a lot more this morning, but I contacted Jaron and Rachel and just said, not going to happen. So uh, we're just going to be in chapter 12 today. We finished up last time, as I said, in 1 Kings chapter 11, where King Solomon had had a great run, but now he was no longer following after the Lord. He had built pagan altars for all of his wives. All of his wives, don't miss that part. That was a bit of a problem as well. And uh, we saw in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, it said, For when Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And I hadn't planned on pausing there, but as I read that, I, I'm just reminded of me standing up here not that long ago teaching on the life of David how he royally blew it. And we think, how could God still be holding David as the standard for what a great godly king is? Because when I think of David, I can't help but wince and go, whew. He came so close to being a great king, to being a great man. But he committed adultery. He committed murder. And yet, throughout Kings, throughout Chronicles, throughout the Bible, God holds David up as a godly man, a man after his own heart. David is the standard by which all other kings are measured. And you have to wonder about that. We can't really understand that until we somehow try our best to view mankind through the eyes of God's grace. David failed. He blew it, as did everybody else. But here's the difference. David was grieved by his sin, and he repented of his sin. Hey, can I just tell you, our sin is no surprise to God. But what what breaks God's heart is when we just carry on with it, and it doesn't bother us. David failed miserably, 
And yet, here it says, Solomon was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Aren't you thankful? And this is not an excuse for us to live how we want to. If anything, it should be the fuel for us to live a godly life. But aren't you thankful that God's grace covers all our sin? Well, verse 11, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11. Therefore, because of what Solomon had done, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servants. Same words that God used for King Saul. Verse 12, nevertheless, I will not do it in your lifetime for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And so this began really the downward spiral of Solomon. God raised up adversaries against Solomon as part of his punishment. The three main ones, Hadad, Rezon, and Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the one who would continue on for years to really be a, a troublemaker for Israel. And during the last years of Solomon's life, these, these adversaries would really make his life miserable until the day he died. Solomon spent his last days not so much in a rocking chair on the front porch in the lake house. He spent his last days worried that these adversaries might do him in, and he spent his last days trying to kill Jeroboam. I mean, what a way for a person's life to end. What a tragedy it is that Solomon's life would conclude this way after all the ways God had blessed him. It's so sad. And as we've seen with all the other characters so far, verse 41 says this, Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Verse 43, And Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now that, that tells us a couple of things. One, David rested with his fathers. We're all going the same way, folks. We're all going the same way. Live life with the end in view. Be an observer at your own funeral once in a while. The other thing that we see in that verse is that last sentence. It just seems like an ordinary sentence to us, but it's filled with... Um, with weight. Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Wow, we're going to see some dreadful things coming from that statement. And I think maybe if there's one thing we can learn from, from the life of Solomon, as we saw his greatness, how God blessed him, and when he was at the pinnacle, and we saw his decline, we saw his heart turning away from God, and we saw this terrible, sad end to his life. And we looked at Ecclesiastes last week, the last book that Solomon wrote, and just the, the bitter regret of the way he had lived his life. I think if there's anything we can learn as we wrap up the life of Solomon now is, is this. If you're going to be impressed with anyone, be impressed with Jesus. If you're going to pattern your life after anyone, pattern your life after Jesus. People all over the world were impressed with Solomon. People everywhere wanted to be like him. But they were sorely disappointed in the last part of Solomon's life. 
Because even with all his wealth and grandeur, with all his wisdom and glory, he failed horribly. Folks, I just want to tell you, there's only one who will never fail you. Every role model, and I'm not saying it's wrong to have role models, every earthly figure will fail you at some point. There's only one who will never fail you. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 12, 42, Jesus said, and we're trying to connect Old and New Testament as much as we can. Jesus now, many years later, looking back on the life of Solomon, said this, the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, right? We looked at that, the queen of Sheba. And now, one greater than Solomon is here. And that statement must have rattled those Jews. Folks, I want to encourage you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your heart on Jesus. Get to know him more and more. He will never, never disappoint you. Well, now Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is about to take the throne, so we pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. That's a, it was an important place in history. I don't have time to review all that, but Joseph's bones were buried there. A lot of things happened there. Verse 2. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, now Jeroboam was one of the adversaries that God raised up in the last chapter, and when he, ra- when he was raised up as an adversary, Solomon heard it, and as it said, tried to kill him, so Jeroboam took off to Egypt, okay? When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, that Solomon was dead and that Rehoboam was about to take over, tells us in parentheses, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, they, the people sent and called for him, for Jeroboam. Verse 3, Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. And we talked a lot about the, the splendor and the grandeur of King Solomon's kingdom. But as the years went on, we learned that Solomon began to tax the people heavily. He, he began to put heavy burdens on them. Remember all the great buildings that Solomon did. The temple, greatest thing ever seen in history at that point. Uh, and he also spent, um, I think it was 13 years, you might correct me on that, but I think it was 13 years building his own palace and a palace for his wife. Silver was as common there, we're told, uh, as stones on the ground. I mean, Solomon just he had incredible wealth. But folks, what happens when governments overspend? They have to tax people more. I know we don't know anything about that in our culture, but and that's what Solomon did. He had all this great stuff going on, all these government projects, you know, $40,000 for a toilet seat or something, like all of these nonsense things we hear about our government. Well, guess what? It comes out of our pocket. The same thing was true back then. Solomon taxed the people, and he made them work hard at the end of his life, and it was a burden to them. So now they're pleading with his son, Rehoboam, to lighten the load. Verse 5, Rehoboam said to them, Go away for three days and then come come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the old men, or the elders, that's literally interpreted, who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived, and he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they said to him, 
If you will be a servant to these people this day and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus taught us? He who would be the greatest must be the least. He who would be the the ruler must be the servant. Verse 8, but he rejected the counsel which the old man had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer these people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Verse 10, then the young men who had grown up with him said to him, this is how you should answer these people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. This is what you should tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. (laughs) Uh, Rehoboam at this point thinks that he is a bigger man than his daddy. That's what it's saying. I'm a bigger man than my dad. That's what they're telling him. But upcoming events will prove otherwise. Verse 11, and now where is my father? Put a heavy yoke on you. These are the people still telling him what to say. I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. In other words, man, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to make it sting. And he's saying, if you think it was tough under my father, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait and see what I'm going to do. You know what? As I, as I read that, I'm so glad that our king isn't like that. Aren't you? Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Come unto me, all you who are weary and weighed down with heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rehoboam was going to chastise the people and whip them, but what does the Bible say Jesus did for us? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. Aren't you glad that we're followers of a king who was whipped in our place, who was wounded for us so that we wouldn't have to be wounded, but rather so that we could be healed? Well, Rehoboam was the opposite of that. In verses 12 to 14, we don't have time to read all of these, but basically what happens is Jeroboam and the people come back after three days. They come back to Rehoboam like he had asked them to. But it says that Rehoboam spoke harshly to them. I mean, he's not even on the throne yet, and he's already a cocky little guy, arrogant, thinks he runs the show. He spoke harshly to them, and he said it again, I'm going to make your burden even heavier than my father did. I'm going to whip you and chastise you. Verse 15 says this, the king did not listen to the people for this cause or this turn of events, watch this, was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word which he had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. You go, wow, that's a mouthful. What in the world? Look at that phrase, though. For this cause or this turn of events was from the Lord. What turn of events? Rehoboam speaking harshly to the people. That was from the Lord so that he could fulfill his word, his prophecy. 
Now, Ahijah was that prophet we saw a while back who had said earlier there's going to be a split in the kingdom and 10 tribes are going to go to the north to follow Jeroboam and two tribes are going to go to the south under Rehoboam. So this is amazing. Even this bad decision that Rehoboam made, even these harsh words that he spoke that day, that was all part of the sovereign plan of God to fulfill prophecy and to fulfill his purposes. Now, does that make your head ring just a little bit? It does mine. This is not at all saying that we, you and I are robots that God pre-programmed and we have no say in the matter. The Bible does not teach that. We all have a choice in how we're going to live our lives. Somehow in it all, in some mysterious way, God uses everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to bring about his purposes. And I think we should take great comfort in that. I think we should really pause and and reflect on that and take that in and understand what that's saying to us. Even when our leaders make foolish decisions that bring trouble and suffering to people, even when we see world governments now rushing headlong toward a satanic agenda, Yes, we should stand up. Yes, we should speak out. Yes, we should push against it and speak the truth. But we must never forget that above all the world governments, there is a higher government. Above all the courts in the land, there is a higher court. Above all the rulers in the world, there is a higher ruler. There's a higher power. Things are being fulfilled in ways that we don't understand exactly according to the sovereign, prophetic plan of God. Well, as soon as the people heard Rehoboam's harsh words, starting in verse 16, it says that a whole bunch of them left, and they just said, we're out of here. We're not living under this, and, and, and they left. They went back north to uh, the Israel part. And I meant to bring the map today, and I forgot, but if you can just picture Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south, and Jerusalem sits right about here. Isn't that a great map? But, but Israel north, Judah south, Jeroboam will rule the north, Rehoboam will rule the south. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. We'll talk more about that another day. But this was the beginning of the split of the kingdom. Remember God's desire for his people, and all the way through the New Testament, we see it in John Uh, 17, when Jesus prayed that amazing prayer, his desire is that we would be one, that we would be united as he and his father are one. Satan's plan is to divide. His plan is to, in this church, in all churches in the world, his plan is to bring disunity. And now this is just horrific to see God's people who he has blessed again and again, rescued again and again, provided for again and again, split apart and begin really a civil war with each other. Uh, It could be said, I think, that um, this division of the kingdom was brought on by Rehoboam's foolishness and his harsh words and his stubbornness, but that wasn't the ultimate cause. And I really want us to see this today. I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this in a way that, that it's clear enough, but I hope it will be. That, that Rehoboam's actions were not the ultimate cause of the split. Rehoboam's actions were just the means that God used 
to bring about the division in the nation because he had promised, he had said that judgment was coming and the judgment was going to be a split in the kingdom. And God has to fulfill his word. And he will use any means necessary to bring that about. And we see that happening here. Rehoboam was just sort of the instrument, the tool that God used to unleash that judgment that was prophesied. It's one of the many passages that we see throughout the Bible that teach us that God accomplishes his will even through the sinful thoughts and actions of human beings. It's extraordinary. Well, Rehoboam now is furious, these verses tell us, uh, that the people have turned their back on him, and they've walked away, they've rejected him. Most of the tribes have deserted him, and so he sends his chief uh, tough guy to the people, we're told, to go and rough them up a bit and show them who's boss. But instead, what happens is the people stone him to death. And when Rehoboam heard about this, These verses tell us that he hopped in his chariot and he hightailed it out of town. He went back south to Judah, to Jerusalem. And so all the people who are left up north now in Israel, they made Jeroboam king over them. We read that in these verses. They they gathered together. They brought the assembly together, it says, and they, they made Jeroboam king over the 10 northern tribes. And as that is going on up north in Israel... Down south in Judah, Rehoboam is assembling an army to go back up and fight Israel. And as he's getting ready to go and attack them, 1 Kings 12, 24 says this. This is what the Lord says. You are not to go up and fight against your brothers, the Israelites. See, now the Lord still sees them as brothers. They're divided. They're split. God says, no, this is not my desire for you. You're not to go up and fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Each of you must return home, for this thing is from me. There it is again. This thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. We get a, a glimpse again of God's plan being played out through the events of man. God can even use the wickedness of man to bring about his purposes. And amazingly, this is one moment we see in the life of Rehoboam where he listened to God and obeyed. That won't be his pattern going forward. Starting in verse 26, <clears throat> now these may seem like, like dry historical accounts. You know, this man is old, dusty history. We need to realize that as we look at these verses, we need to realize just how relevant they still are for us today. They're absolutely relevant, absolutely applicable to our lives today. So as we read through these verses, let's remember that. Starting in verse 26, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the the kingdom may return or might return to the house of David. He's worried that he's going to lose his people now, and they're going to go back to Rehoboam. He said, If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam. Uh, He's ruling out of fear is what he's doing. This is a terrible, terrible approach for rulers to take, for any leader to take. He's not trusting God with the people that he's leading. He's trusting in his own ability. He's trying desperately to hold on to them 
It's a sign of a desperate, insecure leader. Verse 28, so the king took counsel and made two golden calves. Oh boy. And he said to the people, going up to Jerusalem, now he's north, Jerusalem is south in Judah, but every time in the Bible it talks about traveling to Jerusalem, it says they go up to Jerusalem. They go up. It's a great lesson in there. The city of God. Whenever you go there, you're ascending. That's a side note. But He said to them, going up to Jerusalem is too much for you. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Verse 29, and he set up one, that's a golden calf in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. You see, he took counsel, Jeroboam took counsel, but he took counsel from people. He didn't inquire of the Lord. Same problem with Saul. Remember when Saul was talking to Samuel, he would always refer to God as your God. Your God, never my God. And this is what Jeroboam is doing. The Bible tells us that Saul failed to inquire of the Lord, and because of that, God judged him. Jeroboam did not inquire of the Lord. Instead, we're told that he said in his heart. Did you see that phrase? He said in his heart heart. Listen, whenever I say in my heart, whenever I make plans in my heart without inquiring of the Lord, I can tell you it inevitably leads to problems and it often leads to sin. And let's not forget in this that God is the one who gave this opportunity to Jeroboam to be a king. We, we saw that last time. It was, it was God who was the one who graciously wanted to give the kingdom to Jeroboam. This was, it was a blessing from God. And yet when problems came, when, when the big decisions came along, Jeroboam didn't even seek God's input. He just turned his back on this gift from God. His counselors told him to set up idols for the people to worship. He was saying to them, hey man, it, it doesn't matter what you worship, just, you know, just worship here, there, this is fine. Just stay here, worship here. You don't need to go and worship God there. And you know, I think it would be fair to say there are a lot of things happening today under the label of Christianity that are not from God at all. And I know not a lot of people speak out about this, but I'm not one of them. I think we need to be reminded of this. We need to be cautious and pray for discernment. Folks, I want to tell you, old and young, but especially young, you younger folks, you students, if you ever hear teaching, if you ever hear preaching that goes against Scripture, run for your life. It is not from God. If somebody tells you they've got a new word for you and it doesn't line up with Scripture, get out of there. It's not from God. You see, this not only affected Jeroboam, it affected all the people because he pointed their hearts away from God now. He said, hey man, these idols, they're, they're just as good as worshiping God in the temple. There's no difference. As long as you're worshiping, that's all that matters. And we hear the same thing today. I'm sure all of you saw this, but it's, it's literally going on right in front of our face in our country. In January, at the opening of Congress, at the opening of the, I think it's the 117th Congress, 
Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, who was also, by the way, a United Methodist minister, gave the closing prayer in our House of Congress, and he closed his prayer with these words, and I quote, We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths, a man and a woman. Why were there not riots for that? Christians like, yeah, that's bad. He shouldn't have done that. And then we turn our TV show on. And I was, I was talking with someone recently, one of our ladies, who, who picked this up. And she, she said the whole, what everybody focused on was that ridiculous phrase at the end, amen and a woman, which doesn't make any sense. Amen is not a gender phrase. But she was right. She said, you know, that silly thing at the end took everybody's focus away from what he really said. We pray in the name of Brahma. That's happening in our, in our Congress. It's everywhere. I'm sure you've seen this bumper sticker. I, I put one of the signs up. Go ahead and throw that up there, that coexist sticker. You've seen these bumper stickers, right? Now, I just want to tell you something. That was not made by a group of sweet little old grandmas who just want the world to get along together. It was not. I want to tell you, we, we need to not be naive about these things. What you're looking at right there, every time you see that on a bumper sticker, you need to remember that is a deliberate, calculated agenda to try and bring about the one world religion. Make no mistake about that. Make no mistake. We could go on and on with examples of how what Jeroboam was doing back then, people are still doing today. But Jeroboam wasn't finished. Verse 31. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people. Now pay attention to this. He made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. You go, well, well, if we remember from our studies before, and God was setting up the tabernacle system and now the temple system, he made it very clear that only men from the tribe of Levi were allowed to serve as priests in the temple. God was saying, this is a special calling. You cannot just grab anybody and throw them in there to fill a position. These people must be specifically groomed and trained. They must have their hearts readied in a specific way in order to serve as my priests. And what Jeroboam is saying here is essentially... Anybody can be in the ministry. Anybody who wants to can be a priest. And by the way, I say these words with great fear and trembling as I stand up here preaching to you. Folks, again, this still goes on today. This chapter is so relevant to our culture still. Pulpits across this country are filled with men and women who don't even believe that the Bible is the word of God. There's a big church not far from here just a few miles from here. Years ago, they stood for the truth, they preached the truth, but now they've proudly announced, literally announced in the newspaper several years ago, that gays and lesbians and transgenders, whoever wants to be, can be a minister and a counselor in their church. Now, verse 32. Pay attention now often the word he, or the phrase he made, or that he made, appear in these verses. Verse 32. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So 
he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places, which he had made. Verse 33, so he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. Are you getting the rhythm of this? And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. He's saying to the people, hey, I've got a better way to worship. You don't have to be tied down to all that old rigmarole that God put in place. I've got some new things. We've got golden calves. Again, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record this morning. That was not only a problem back then, it's a problem today. God has warned his people for generations to stay on the path that he has laid out, not to look for new ways. Jeremiah 6.16, one example. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But the people said, we will not walk in it. No, man, sticking to uh, the old stuff that God has said, that's old-fashioned, Phil. This is 2021, baby. Get with the program. He wanted to make worship new, but that's not all he wanted to do. He wanted to make worship convenient. I, I pointed it out earlier. He said to the people, hey, man, going all the way to Jerusalem, that's too much for you. It's too much of a hassle. Stay here. Worship here. Here are your gods, he said. He's saying to them, hey, folks, Gas is way too expensive to drive all the way to Jerusalem. Who wants to do that? It's inconvenient. Even though God said, you must worship in Jerusalem. No, no, that's the old stuff. Stay here. I've made it convenient for you. And this still goes on today. I've heard it my whole life. People, oh, I don't like the time that church meets. I don't like their chairs. Their carpet's weird, man. Like the music's too loud. No, it's not. It's too soft. It's too hot in there. No, it's too cold. And in the same way that Jeroboam was afraid of losing his people, many church leaders today are afraid of the same thing. So what do they do? They do exactly what Jeroboam did. They add every imaginable imaginable convenience to get people to come And then they jump through all kinds of hoops to get people to stay. Can I just go ahead and tell you up front, not going to happen here. It's just not going to happen here. We've had people come in, you know, and go, you know, I don't don't like the way that they did that thing. And they said, well, there's 400 churches in Greenville. Go find one, friend. (laughs) I'm not being rude. I'm just saying I don't have time to play games with this. I'm getting older. I'm getting more tired. I'm getting a bit cranky with this. (laughs) My patience is just very short with people who are fooling around with this kingdom work that we've been called to. It's nonsense. I want to tell you, the church in America, and this is a blessing and a curse, the church in America has had it really easy for generations now. You understand, it has cost us nothing to follow Christ. Nothing. And what happens when that happens? People get lazy, and they start demanding things. And before long, they're not going to church at all. 
They're just saying, well, church isn't providing everything we need. Oh, man, how did the time go this fast? Y'all mind if we stay just a little bit longer? Today? I, I never do this. I really want to respect the children's ministries, but you see, Rachel and Jaron, you see my problem with this today? There was, there was no way. I just, I always want to be respectful of the workers back there, but this is, I just feel this is so, I, I was planning on going through three chapters initially today, but God just kept bringing this back to me going, Phil, this is where you are today. Pay attention to this. So I'll, I'll tell you, just to give us some kind of measurement here, I have a friend, Bill Mayer, Bill and Nina Mayer in South Africa. Bill was a very rich man, owned the largest sign company in South Africa, owned a very successful restaurant. He got saved. God began to work in his heart. He eventually sold all that, gave the money away to missions, and he and his wife are now, for 20, goodness, 30 years something, have been serving in the slums of South Africa. I went there. I went to one of his services when I was back in South Africa years ago when my brother had leukemia there, and uh, I went to one of his services. They meet in a, a tiny little concrete, uh, yeah, concrete block building. Just, oh, I mean, it, it fit in this section right here. Packed with people sitting in ugly plastic chairs that are super uncomfortable. And Bill was telling me about his people with such great joy. And he said, I see that woman there? A few weeks ago, we noticed her limping. And uh, we said, what, what happened to you? Well, she works at a logging plant. She said one of the logs rolled off and crushed her foot. Now, she walks the church every Sunday. She had quite a long walk, but she enjoyed walking. She spent time just talking to God and listening and praying. And so Bill said to her, how did you get here today? How did you get here with a broken foot? She said, oh, it was no problem. I just woke up. I forget if it was two hours or three hours earlier than usual because she knew that the walk was going to take her that much longer. What? We look out the window on Sunday morning going, it's raining. It's too windy. I don't want to. You understand what I'm driving at here? And can I just throw this in? Unless God steps in and stops what is happening in the world on a global level right now, the church is going to be tested by fire in the days to come. And if we are so wimpy that we cannot get up and go to church just because it's too hot or too cold or too inconvenient, we are going to crumble when the heat comes. We need to prepare. Our, firm, our family uh, worked for years with persecuted Christians around the world uh, in underground churches. And I remember it so well as a teen. I had so many great blessings through seeing this. You know, many of these people, even still today, they're harassed, they're arrested, they're imprisoned, they're tortured, they're even put to death just for their faith in Christ. And in certain places of the world, I remember these people talking about how they had to, you know, do church, how they had to meet. They had to huddle together quietly in, in a basement or a cave or, or deep in the woods in the middle of the night under darkness with no light because they would be seen. And they had to whisper their entire service for fear of being heard and arrested and put to death. There were a number of projects um, where we helped smuggle Bibles through Checkpoint Charlie into what was then East Germany. Many of these Christians hadn't seen a Bible in years because they'd been outlawed and confiscated. And when they received this Bible, they would hug it to their chest. They would kiss it. They would dance around with joy. 
tears streaming down their face. A lot of Christians today can't even find their Bible. Or they throw it in the floorboard of the car. They, I remember once I threw my Bible on the floor. I didn't, mean, I, I didn't mean to when I was a kid. But I just walked in the house and threw it down. Mm. My hiney was tingling for a long time after that. Now look, all the persecuted Christian stuff, I'm not saying that's what I want for us. Not at all. Here's what I am saying. We, we better be careful to never look for the easiest and most convenient way to worship the Lord and serve him. That should never be our motive. And I don't think it's the motive of anybody in here, by the way, and I'm, I'm proud of that, and I thank you for that. So what, what I'm saying here today is just a reminder for all of us, okay? But as I said, we've had it easy for a long time. And if these world events continue, we're not going to have it easy forever, folks. As we realize, as we think about these things, I know I'm, I'm reluctant to talk about them because I know that it fills people's hearts with fear. You know, it's interesting when you look at 1 Kings chapter 12, you really don't see any hope in there. It's a very dark, troubling chapter. You don't see any hope there until, until you pull back far enough to look at the bigger picture of God's eternal plan of redemption taking place. And then you realize, oh, hope was actually still very much alive behind the scenes. Throughout all of those awful events, hope was there. It was there. And today, hearts are filled with fear about what's going on. Because when you see what's happening in the world right now, you don't see a lot of hope. That is, until you pull back far enough to look at the bigger picture of God's eternal plan of redemption. And then you realize, oh, hope is actually still very much alive, church. It's very much alive. It's behind the scenes. It's there because God is still in control, and we must never forget that. We must never forget that. Satan was the one who brought all of that sin and turmoil and division into the events of 1 Kings chapter 12. He, he wanted to divide David's kingdom. He wanted that kingdom to come to an end because that kingdom was going to lead to the coming Messiah. And he was trying to destroy that. And the only reason David's kingdom did continue on to ultimately bring Jesus to us was because of God's promise and God's grace. And it's the same with the church today. The ongoing work of God through the church on this earth can only be attributed to God's promise and God's grace. It's through no effort or goodness of our own. He has promised to uphold, to sustain his church so that not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. So while the world out there tries to find their hope and security and salvation in government, or financial security, or science. Don't get me started. Science, which by the way, when they keep saying, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science, it's like a mantra. I don't have any problem with science, but that's not science. It's scientism. It's a religion. It's a cult. Scientism. Do not question us. That's what they're saying. How dare you question us? Trust us. Mm-hmm. You want me to trust the science of people who say that God didn't create the world? It evolved out of nothing. You want me to trust the science that says there's not just two genders, there's now hundreds. I don't know how many. You want me to trust that science? The science, those people, the things they're telling us to trust? Those people? 
Not a chance. Folks, we, we don't look to any of those things. We are set apart from the world. Our hope is not where their hope is. Our destiny is not their destiny. We can rest in the absolute assurance that God is the source of our life, our hope, our security, our provision, our destiny. God is our source of hope. Hallelujah for that. And he has provided that hope through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to all who will repent of their sin and turn to him and call out for salvation and forgiveness. We are in him and we can find that hope. Are you in him today? Is that where you're getting your hope today? I pray that it is. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.